then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. My goodness. Don't you want to keep singing that? Mm. Mm. God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Let's pray. This is a most glorious revelation, Father, that you would show to us that we were created by you in your image with a great and glorious purpose of filling the earth that you might be glorified both now and for all eternity by those whom you have redeemed. Father, I ask this morning that you would help us to see you, the image giver, granting to us those created in your image, this great honor and responsibility to honor you with our lives, to reveal to the world how great and good you are, and to show them Christ, our Savior. Do that great work this morning here, I pray. Sharpen our ears that we might hear your word. Soften our hearts that we might not be prideful. And give us a desire to be conformed into the image bearers you so intend. We ask all this, that our great and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, might be glorified. In his name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. If you have a Bible, please open up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. There are certain songs that we sing before a sermon. That's one that I just want to keep on singing. I know that I'm supposed to proclaim the gospel, and I know I'm supposed to preach. Maybe we'll do it again after. Last week, if you were here, we had um, the incredible blessing of opening up to Genesis chapter 1 and having a chance to see the love and the glory of God manifest in His creation. We got a chance to see how good He is because He created His very good creation without flaw, without blemish. And from the opening verses of the Bible, if you have read your Bible at all, He opens up here and He identifies Himself as our pre-existing eternal Creator, as the Maker of the heavens and the earth, of all that is seen and all that is unseen. He, God, is not defined or determined or shaped by anyone or anything. He is the one who gives meaning, and He gives purpose, and He gives being to everyone and everything. He is the absolute eternal reality, and we can say definitively He exists. His existence has provided for the existence of all things, heaven and earth, moon and stars, all life on earth comes from Him and is for Him. 
That includes the massive blue whale to the Etruscan shrew that only weighs 0.063 ounces. If anything exists, it's because God made it, especially mankind. We were made for the distinct purpose of bringing him honor and glory. For most of us, it's not difficult to look upon God's creation and see how it glorifies him, how it brings him majesty. Because when we look upon the creation, we think this must be a good God. This must be a most powerful God. We get these pictures from the telescopes that reach out in the galaxy, and it's breathtaking. You know, if you've traveled up to the northern part of the state and you've made your way through the giant redwoods, they are breathtaking. Everywhere we see, from the depths of the oceans to to the deserts to life on earth, the, the incredible diversity of life on earth, the 400 billion stars in our own galaxy, the 50 billion planets, all scream the magnificence and the goodness of this creator, of this maker. I don't think that's hard for most. I would argue, though, that when we look upon ourselves, when we look upon mankind, the the greatest creation of God, the only creature made in His image, when we look upon ourselves, we have difficulties seeing the glory of God. Many extreme environmentalists look upon the natural world and they see human beings as being the blight of the earth. Some going so far as to argue against their own existence, saying that if this creature, mankind, were not here, the creation would be a much better place. Now, as misplaced as their thinking is, and as misplaced as their worldview is, there is some truth in that statement according to the Word of God. The Bible says it was mankind who brought sin and death into God's very good creation. It was mankind who brought rebellion against God into His very good creation. Romans chapter 8, verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility by man. Verse 22, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now because of man. So if God created everything for His glory, not because He needs glory, God is perfectly sufficient and perfectly satisfied in Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God did not create us because He needs us. But if God created us for glory, for His glory, the real question I think for us is, why did He create this world? Why did He create this creation? And why did He create men and women and children like us? Why? If not to make up some deficiency in His character, if we were created to to glorify Him by seeing Him and by knowing Him and by living our lives in such a way that everybody sees and knows Him, if that's why He created us in the beginning, if, if, if that's His purpose for mankind and yet we're the ones who brought sin and death and rebellion into His good creation, then the environmentalist has a good question to pose. Why did God do that? Maybe there's some convergence in that thought. Why are you here and why am I here? If his crowning achievement on day six of his creation was those created imago dei in his image, and yet we are responsible for the sin and death, for the disharmony and the darkness that brought its way into his creation, 
then why create us at all? Why not, as the environmentalists would want, why not create earth and no man? Why not? I would argue this, and I believe the Bible testifies, that the pinnacle, the apex, the consummation of God's glory is revealed in His love towards sinners. And the great work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross to redeem sinful men and sinful women just like us. This is the pinnacle of the revelation of the glory of God. And if all creation exists to bring Him glory, then this work upon the cross reveals the immeasurable grace that God has for sinners like you and me. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, my beloved, is the greatest exaltation the greatest revelation, the greatest magnification of the glory of God known to man on the cross. That's why we talk about the cross. That's why we sing about the cross. That's why we lift Jesus Christ up again and again, Sunday after Sunday, because this is the pinnacle of the glory of God, a crucified, risen Savior. And God did all of this, all of the creation, the fall, the exaltation, so that Christ can reign, so that He will be seated upon His throne and we would rightly worship Him. So with that long introduction in mind, I want to ask a few questions. I do. I want to ask why this world? Why fallen man? Why not another world? God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. He could have had an infinite number of counterfactual realities to create. Why this one? Why you? I think the Bible is going to draw the same conclusion. It's for the exaltation of Jesus Christ through the cross, and that is the purpose. So I want to do three things. I want to look at three turning points in God's creation, and then I want to draw out some implications for us. Number one, the image given for the glory of God. Number two, the image exchanged for the glory of God. And number three, the image restored for the glory of God. Given, exchanged, and restored, all three for God's glory. First, the image given for the glory of God. If you have your Bible, look again at Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So this initial movement is to create a creature in the image of God, like God, not God, but like God. And look at Look at the latter part of verse 27. So God created a man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of the creation account, we see that God has so decreed that he would not rule over his creation alone. That God chose in his purposed will to have mankind created in His image to rule with Him. Mankind was made to serve God. Mankind was made to worship God. Mankind was made to glorify God. He was made to be an image bearer, to take on characteristics and relational attributes that only God has, to take those on and then to live in this world and point all the glory and all the honor back to God. No other creature. It is an amazing thing of the millions of creatures that God, there's no other creature made in His image. No other creature, you alone, not even the highest of angels, 
We're given the relational characteristics and the attributes to live and rule like you. It's a most distinct honor of the highest kind. And we're given this honor and this incredible responsibility with a fundamental task. Look at verse 28. God blessed them and he said what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And there's so much teaching on this, so much good teaching. We hear it and we usually think procreation. Get married, have babies. And that's a piece of it, but it's not the primary reason. Why this calling? By those created in the image of God to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the entire earth. Why? If we go back to the first premise, God created all that is seen and unseen to bring himself glory. And now he creates mankind in his image, the only creature as such. And then he calls mankind, those created in his image, to go be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Why would he do that? I mean, why would God, why would God want the globe filled with little image bearers of himself? Why would he want that? Why do we have images of any kind? If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., you've been to our capital, you've seen images of people like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. You've seen images of Lincoln and, and Martin Luther King. Why, why images of men? What is the significance? For those monuments, it's to, to remember these great men in U.S. history, that we might honor them, that we might remember their work and remember their effort. It's to, for, for visitors to come and direct their hearts and minds to the significant role these men and women played. And so we contemplate and we meditate on those men based upon the image. And if it's a good image, and some of them are amazing, you will do just that. In other words, a good image will bring glory and honor to the original. In the case of mankind, that original is the image maker himself. It is God. And the Bible tells us that God made man in his image, male and female. He made them to be his image bearers on earth for this distinct purpose. And I don't want you to miss this because if you miss this, you have no idea why you're here. Your entire purpose comes down to this. You're an image bearer of God so that you might in your life point all glory and all honor to him. That's your purpose. That's why God made you in his image and not as a dog or a cat or a cow. You were made in his image so that you can point all people and all creation back to the glorious nature of this good, all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent God. And by filling the earth, by filling the earth, he has systematically placed seven billion people in his image, on every corner of the globe, so that every tribe and every tongue and every nation will be thoroughly and completely without excuse in glorifying the Creator. It is amazing to me when people say, if God would just show himself, then I would believe. Seven billion creatures made in his image that we might know him. That's a lot of monuments. That's a lot of statues spread throughout the world to establish God as God and bring Him the honor and the glory that He rightly deserves. And just like Adam and Eve before the fall, when they walked in the coolness of the day with God, God sent out His images 
to the edges of the earth that we might take that glorious proximity of God in the garden, that temple in Eden, and cover the globe with it. Adam and Eve were set to that task as image bearers. They were to go and multiply and fill the earth that God's glory might be known. They were our first missionaries with this glorious task to bear the image of God, to be God's representative here on earth so that all of creation, all of mankind might testify to the glory and honor of our maker, this great, great God. Grievously, and we know this, but not unexpectedly and not unplanned, Adam and Eve failed to accomplish their primary mission. Point number two, the image that was exchanged for God's glory. Do you have the first point? It needs to be solidified in your mind. The purpose of God creating man in his image was to bring himself glory. That's why you breathe. That's why you came into the world. Whether you're living in accordance with that purpose or not, that is your purpose. Let's look at the second point, the image exchanged for God's glory you have your Bible open, please turn to the next chapter, chapter 2. Look at verse 15 and following with me, please. The Lord God, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So in this glorious creation, God made the heavens and the earth in six days, and then He takes Adam and Eve and He puts them in the garden, and He gives them full reign in the garden. It was a most extraordinary setting. Here they are, Adam and Eve, perfect without sin, in communion with God, and they're able to work and to rule as they were created in the garden. They were able to live in harmony with God and with creation. They were able to enjoy one another and be fruitful and multiply. And there was only one thing that God said, do not do. And he said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the one thing he held back. And that was it. It was a covenant relationship. One law established by God. Do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he gave it to them in order to protect them. You say, well, how did that protect them? It was the one thing that led to the fall. How did it protect them? God asked early on. He said, there's only one thing I ask, that you trust me. I want you to trust me to know what is absolutely best for you. I want you to trust me to know what is absolutely best for your life. And in his perfect kingdom, he said, know that I love you most. Know that I have what is best for you in mind. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Trust in me, not in your own knowledge, not in your own wisdom. Trust in me. Now we know how the story goes or we wouldn't be here. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan in the form of a servant, serpent, he comes up to Eve and he deceives her. He says to her, If you eat from the forbidden tree, you will not surely die. God said you will. Satan says, no, you won't. What is he doing? He's calling God a liar. He's saying, no, God's trying to deceive you. God doesn't want what's best for you. God knows that if you eat from that tree, listen to what he said. God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And here, my beloved, is the great lie and the great perversion of all creation. 
This is it. This is what started the ball rolling in the wrong direction. The twisting of God's truth and man's purpose has infected the hearts and minds of all mankind from that moment forward. No longer seeing ourselves as image bearers, representatives of God here on earth, to honor Him, to love Him, to serve Him, and to glorify Him. No longer seeing that. No longer being satisfied with that. No longer being content with living a life not for ourselves, but for God. That was lost at the fall. We, no, we rejected being glory reflectors, and we wanted to be glory receivers. We said, enough of this. We want to be what? Like God. We don't want to just be in His image. We don't want to be little reflectors here on earth that magnify His glory. We want to be like God. That's what the lie Satan gave to Eve and to Adam, and they bought it. In other words, the statue wants to be like the original. The image bearer wants to be like its creator. And so Adam and Eve, they ate and they fell. And grievously, my beloved, they brought all mankind with them. When Adam and Eve fell, it wasn't just that they sinned and rebelled and died and their children were fine. The Bible says very clearly that in their sin, it was passed down from generation to generation so that every man, woman, and child since Adam and Eve has been born and lived in sin. And that is our nature. That is who we are apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ, sinners through and through. Paul tells us in Romans 1.21, For although they, all mankind, knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. And this is the great perversion. This is it. Mankind, God's supreme creation, made in God's image to bring God glory, does not want to glorify God, but wants glory for Himself. That is the foundation of all sin. Every single manifestation of sin comes down to this perversion. Not glory for God, glory for me. Not glory for the Creator, glory for those made in His image. Paul continues in Romans 1, he says, we became futile in our thinking. He's now describing mankind who's rejected the purpose of glorifying God. We became futile in our thinking. Our foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, this was the promise of Satan to Eve, you will be wise like God. Claiming to be wise, we became fools and we exchanged, listen closely, my beloved, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. We exchanged our our preordained eternal purpose as people, creating the image of God to bring God glory. We exchanged that to bring glory to ourselves. And so ever since Adam and Eve, mankind has been born and lives in this desire for self-glorification and self-exaltation when our very purpose, the blood that runs through our veins, is to glorify God. You can't get more off track than that. You can't invert a purpose more than that. If you were created in the image of God to glorify God and you live to glorify yourself, you're doing the exact opposite of your purpose. This is bad. In 2009, if you follow the news, Bernie Madoff, you guys remember that name? Bernie Madoff was sentenced to 150 years in prison. 150 years for security fraud. It is estimated that Bernie Madoff made off with almost 
$18 billion in his investors' money. $18 billion. That's an 18 with nine zeros that follow it. That's a lot of money. In fact, it's so much money, it's the average annual income of over 350,000 households. One man walked away with. The courts rightly judged him and found him guilty and sentenced him to 150 years in prison. You say, well, he was pretty old when he committed the crime. How's he going to, how's he going to serve 150 years? He's not going to be able to. He will die in prison. But his crime was so egregious that the investors who lost their entire life savings said 150 years is not enough. He needs greater punishment. How much more, my beloved, will we, image bearers, those creating the image of God, be culpable before our maker? How much more so we? And not just for how we have mismanaged our money, but for our entire lives. If God made you so that your entire life is to reflect His glory, and apart from Jesus Christ, you realize your entire life has been only lived to bring yourself glory and honor and prestige and entertainment what will happen when we stand before the perfect judge? If a, if a fallen judicial court can render 150 years against Bernie Madoff, how will we stand before a thrice holy God when he looks upon us and he says, I created you in my image, I gave you a distinct purpose to live your entire life, to honor me and serve me and glorify me, and we say, we did none of that. We didn't do any of that. From the moment that I was born to the moment I died, I live for myself, for my needs and my desires and my glory. What will God say to that? We know what the Bible says. God will cast us out in the outer darkness. He will say, I never knew you. And we will suffer the weeping, a gnashing of teeth for eternity. The bedrock of all sin, my beloved, is the exchange of your purpose from being created in the image of God to glorify Him to just trying to glorify yourself. All sin comes down to this fundamental purpose exchange. Image of God, image bearer for His glory to many gods, little gods, living our lives as we see fit, as we want to. It means working and playing. It means getting married and raising a family. It means enjoying a good meal or watching a good movie, not for God's glory, but for your glory. It means not reflecting to the world who you are and why you were made. It means that your entire life misses the mark. That your entire life, which has a distinct and most glorious purpose as an image bearer, misses the mark because your glory and your honor comes all back to you. We often think of those who, who rebel against God as, as, you know, like the Bernie Madoffs or the Adolf Hitlers. You can miss God. You can live a, a life that you think prosperous. And you can live a life the culture thinks good as well. That you get married and you have your children and you raise them up. And you provide for them and they go to good schools and they get good jobs. And you can say to yourself, I lived a good life. But if you did all of that... And it wasn't for the glory of God. You lived the worst life possible. If you add to that service and benevolence and you were generous with your money and generous with your time and you took in orphans from overseas 
and you blessed your neighbor who could not care for himself, and you did all this great work. If the glory was not for God, you missed your purpose, and you lived the worst life possible. This is not about you going out and committing murder and rape. This is about your very purpose. And if you miss that, you miss everything. And if you miss that, you have lived a wasted life. Doing what is right in your own eyes. Living as though you have no king and no creator and no eternal purpose. So with the fall, sin and death, that's physical death and spiritual death, came in and infected all mankind so that we were no longer able to have communion with God. And having no communion with God, we could not be the image bearers. We could not take the light of Christ and shine throughout the world. I mean, imagine today, imagine seven billion people occupied by the Holy Spirit, shining brilliantly the light of Christ everywhere. What a place this would be. What would the news agencies do? What would they report on every night? There'd be no murder. There'd be no war. There'd be no divorce. There'd be no suffering. There'd be no overdoses. What would they talk about? They'd be put out of business. When we were cut off from God, when He cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, and we lost that sweet, intimate fellowship, that partnership with God, our hearts were darkened too. And we became ineffective image bearers. No more light. No more light to, to project out into the darkness. I don't know if you remember, in July of 2012, 7 million people in northern India lost power. It was one of the largest power outages in the history of the world. The grid was overloaded. Um, it was pretty hot in July. And northern India literally went black for days. The satellite images are incredible. Here you have light, and now there's darkness. When Adam and Eve sinned and plunged all of mankind into sin and darkness, the light went dark. And now, what do we project as image bearers? We don't project light, we project darkness. We don't glorify God, we glorify ourselves. And all the manifestations of that, all the evil that we see, all the suffering, all the sickness, all the hatred and the war is a product of that switch of us moving away from God and moving to ourselves and denying the very purpose for which we were created. Now, if you've heard this thus far, and you say, no, wait a minute, he created me in his image to bring him glory, and Adam and Eve, and, and myself included, we've sinned against God, and, and we brought nothing but darkness into his creation. You have to go back to the original question, why then did he do it? And why did he make this place that seems like such a mess? Because it is messy. We don't want to stand in the pulpit and talk about how great the world is. We all know the pain. We all know the suffering. So why would God, you have enough theological sense to know that He is sovereign, He's all-powerful, and He's all-knowing, so He didn't make a mistake. Why would He do it like this? Why would He, before the foundations of the world, intend to create a people in His image that He knew would sin against Him and rebel? If He knew that Adam and Eve would, through their sin, plunge all of creation into sin and darkness. Why create Adam and Eve? Why put him in a garden with a tree? Why make the tree in the first place? And then why tell him not to eat from it if he knew they were going to eat from it? And why allow Satan in the garden? Those are all valid questions. And the Bible has a fantastic answer for them. Last point. Are you still with me? The image restored. The image of given by God 
that we might glorify Him. The image was exchanged by man that we might glorify ourselves. And so we need restoration. We need somebody to make this mess right. It's not going to be us. Why would God take His glorious beginning that He says with His own mouth, His own mouth, very good, perfect? Why would He allow the harmony of His creation to be subject by sin? There is only one answer that makes any sense, and that is through our sin and our rebellion and through our restoration to our original purpose, God would be and is most glorified. In other words, His love And His grace that is poured out through the cross at Calvary brings Him the most glory. More glory than when He created the heavens and the earth. More glory than when He created all the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. More glory than when He brought Adam and Eve into existence in the beginning. More glory at the cross through the redemption of Jesus Christ. In other words, the creation, fall, redemption story that we all know, it was the story that God had in mind before anything ever was so that in the end, Jesus Christ would be most glorified. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That was before anything good was created, and that's before anyone sinned in His good creation. And what purpose was this? God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world for the praises of His glorious grace that Jesus Christ might be glorified. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 that we are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ who was chosen before the creation of the world to be our Savior. You say, wait a minute. How was Christ chosen before the creation of the world to be our Savior when we didn't need a Savior yet? That doesn't make any sense. Man hadn't been created, and therefore man couldn't have fallen. Therefore man did not need a Savior How can Peter say that before the creation of the world, Jesus Christ was our Savior? Because that was the eternal plan. Jesus Christ was your Savior before you were ever born. Jesus Christ was your Savior before you ever sinned and needed a Savior. Because that is the plan of redemption. That is the plan that expresses, listen closely, I don't want to lose you. This is the plan that expresses God's glory best. The grace of God. And the love that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ in the redemption of fallen man magnifies God most. And remember, all creation exists for what reason? To bring Him glory and honor. So you say, okay, I'm starting to get it then. The cross and the redemption of fallen man and the work of Jesus Christ, it too is about God's glory. Yes, yes, yes. This glorious, eternal plan ordained by God to take the lamb, Jesus Christ, and have him slain so that the lamb that was slain will be the one who sits upon the throne and all creation on heaven, on earth, and under the earth will declare the glories of his name. He will be most glorified in the name of Jesus Christ so that you and I and all those who are redeemed by grace will one day gather around the throne with the elders and with the angels and we will sing to God. We will praise the name of the Lamb. Listen to this from Revelation 5. One day, if you know Christ, you will say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is that Lamb. Hear the cross 
enabled Jesus Christ to die for our sins and redeem many, that the many will gather for eternity around the throne and say, worthy are you to have all wealth and wisdom and power and might and honor and glory and blessing forever. And then John says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and on the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him, Jesus Christ, to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You were created, you have fallen, and you've been redeemed to bring glory and honor to the Lamb that was slain. So you might ask yourself, but why is this? Why is a Lamb that was slain the pinnacle of God's glory? I mean, God is glorified and magnified for an infinite number of reasons, but you're telling me that the consummation of the glory of God is revealed in His love and mercy and grace poured out on sinful man. I say yes because the Bible says that. What makes this single event in human history, an obscure event 2,000 years ago in a strange land on a Roman cross, what makes that the pinnacle? You can say, I've seen sunrises that have to be better than that Roman cross. I've seen creatures that have to be more glorious than that Roman cross. It's only because you don't see what happened on that cross. Because if you did, and if you know what happened on that cross, what God did upon that cross, you will praise the Lamb that was slain, and you will want to sing to Him forever and ever. I want to close by showing you a few reasons that the cross is the central point of the glorification of God. Why it always comes back to the cross. First, his love is revealed in the grace that was shown on the cross despite the severity of the crime that was committed. His love and grace is shown in the forgiveness that is granted in light of this crime that was committed. Remember, you, are, you were created in his image. You are the prized possession of God made to bring him honor and glory, and you, the prized possession, instead of taking that, your life, to live for him, you turned it to live for yourself. It is the greatest perversion. And you took every blessing that God gave you, all that he gave you through common grace, all the relational capacity that you have being created in his image, all the knowledge that you have in your mind, we took that and we used it for ourselves. (coughs) We can say, it is a criminal act (coughs) that exceeds the rebellion of Hitler Stalin, Mao Zedong combined. You taking the glory given to you to give to God and using it on yourself. We can absolutely say that that punishment is worthy of eternal damnation. But, Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So there's great hope in the midst of a most horrific crime committed. Secondly, his love is revealed in the grace he extends when our justice is eternal death. The just desert that God offers to us is not damnation but life. The Bible says very clearly the wages of sin is death. It is eternal damnation. It is the lake of fire. But in order to magnify his name, what does God do? He calls people by name and he saves them by grace 
and he brings them into his own family, that their end won't be the judgment seat of God and eternal death. Their end will be forgiveness and grace and mercy and eternal life in the king. In other words, he shows those of us so undeserving, unmerited favor. Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us Even when we were dead in our trespasses, did what? He made us alive together with Christ by grace, by grace, by grace you have been saved. Unmerited favor. Number three, God's love and grace is revealed at the cross by our inability to save ourselves. Romans 5, 12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Once Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, there was no way back. We were cut off from communion with God. We die physically. We die spiritually. There was no way we could make our way back. We couldn't be good enough. We couldn't be religious enough. We couldn't be baptized enough times. The only way we could get back in is if God made a way for us. If God came to us and brought us back in. If God would be so gracious to extend life to those who are dead in their sins. And he did just that. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus Christ had his body dashed to pieces so that yours would be spared. Jesus Christ had his blood spilled so that your blood would be spilled. Jesus Christ, listen, he took the full wrath of a holy God, your sins, so that you would receive his righteousness and have life instead of death. By grace, you have been saved. Number four, God's love and grace is magnified at Calvary in the cost of the redemption. You all know this verse. It's like the one verse that the entire church has memorized. Not a bad one to have memorized. John 3.16, for God what? He so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What was the cost of buying you back? What was the cost of buying one soul back from the eternity in hell they rightly deserve. It is Christ. It was the Son of God, the perfect life exchanged for the sinful life. It was the most righteous one in exchange for the unrighteous many. It was an exchange on the grandest of scales that God said, you punish me so you can save them. You pour all of your wrath upon me so that you can grant them life and righteousness instead of death. In 1 John 3.16, we're said, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. The very foundation of man's understanding of love is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we can go so far as to say this, you cannot know what real love is unless you know that Jesus Christ died for you, that he made that exchange on your behalf. Those of us Created in the image of God, we exchanged the, gr- the glory of the immortal God for the glory of man. Jesus Christ exchanged the glory of his Father for our sins. And he did that for our sake. He became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might what? We, image bearers who rebelled against God, might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin so that we could become his children. Number five, God's love is revealed on the cross in the vehicle of our redemption. In the original covenant that God made with Adam and Eve, 
He said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, just trust me. You realize that? That was a covenant of faith. He said, God said to Adam and Eve, just trust me. I am your creator. I will provide for you what is best for you. Have faith in me. Don't long for the things that you ought not long for. Jesus reiterates this call to faith in John 5, 24. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. In other words, trusting in God, the covenant made between Adam and Eve is the same trust that God calls us today. It is the way of salvation to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Hasn't changed. The severity of the crime, the punishment we deserve, our inability to save ourselves, the cost of redemption, the vehicle of our faith, and I'll give you one more. The lasting fruit that comes from the cross is reason to boast in the cross. There will come a day, my beloved, when this world will pass away. There will come a day, according to 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are, on, that are done on it will be exposed. And you say, well, that's a terrifying thought. It's going to come, and there's going to be this great fire that consumes everything. You say, well, what hope is there in that? If you have been born again, if you have been brought into the covenant promise of God by faith, then you will be saved by the blood of the Lamb. You'll be restored. The Bible says you'll be made new without spot or blemish. You'll be given a new body in which the Holy Spirit will dwell within you without sin. No more flesh and no more spirit. No more Romans 7 battle. The things that I do not want to do, I keep on doing. That which I want to do, I do not do. Oh, what a wretched man am I. No more battle. Imagine that day when you're set free. The Holy Spirit reigns in you fully. And your greatest desire in this eternal state is to be the image bearer you were created to be. Your greatest desire, your greatest longing will be to worship God and to love God and to know Him more. It'll be to be in His presence. It'll be to bow down and to sing to Him and to serve Him and to honor Him. And there'll be no, listen, there'll be no conflicting desires. What a day that will be. No conflicting desires. No rebellion No flesh saying, no, not God, you. I long for the day when my deepest desire is the praise and glory and honor of God. And no more me. Why did God create a world like this? Why did God create man who he knew would fall into sin so that he could buy him back? so that he could send his son, Jesus Christ, to engage in the greatest of exchanges, his life for yours, so that he would have a people, a holy people, a royal priesthood that he would gather into the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and church for all eternity, glorifying one another and being glorified. He engaged in this great work, creation, fall, redemption, the plan before anything ever was that his, so that his son, Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, would be glorified. And so you can say, are you telling me that all of creation is for that purpose? Yes, indeed, for the glory of God, specifically for the glorification of Jesus Christ, that what? 
that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why you were made. That's why everything exists. That will be the consummation of human history. We'll be gathering all that is made for the glory of Jesus Christ. So I'll ask you and I'll close, is the glory of God? Ask yourselves this, please. The consequences are eternal. Is the glory of God, is knowing Him, is loving Him, is living a life in obedience to Him according to His word, is it your greatest desire in life? Don't lie to yourself. You may fool yourself right now, and you may fool others right now, but there will come a day when your heart is exposed, and you will stand before the Lamb of God who was slain, and He will say to you, no, it wasn't. You lied. You say, no, 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 I went to church. He said, no, I know you went to church. He said, I read my Bible. He said, I know, you have like eight in your house. He said, I was baptized three times. He said, I know you're an Anna, Anna, Anabaptist. He said, but your glory was not for me. You lived your life for yourself. Everything you did was for yourself. And you say, no, no, I lived for my wife. I lived for my children. I lived for my employer. And Christ was saying, yeah, but it wasn't for my glory. It was for your own. Can you, like the Apostle Paul, say, I rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? Can you say that? I rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Can you say that your greatest joy, your greatest rejoicing is in the hope of the glory of God? Can you say that? Can you say like Paul in Philippians 3 that whatever gain you've had, you count as loss for the sake of Christ? Can you say as he did that you count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus your Lord? Can you say that? Your whole life? I'll give it all up. I'll sacrifice everything just to know Him because if I know Him, I know eternal life. Are you living your life as an image bearer? Does the world look at you and they, do they see God? You're an image bearer. You bear the image of your Creator. Does the world see you and see your life and see you at work and see your marriage and do they see the living God? They're supposed to. That shouldn't be a strange thing for the world to see us and see the maker. Do those around you see a humble heart, a grateful heart? Do they see a heart that desires to serve others above themselves? Does it see a heart that puts the interests of others above their own? You were created for a most glorious purpose, and Jesus Christ died for you to fulfill that purpose. If you're still in rebellion against God, if these questions that I asked you, you cannot say yes to, and it's not a maybe. If it's a maybe, it's a no. It's either a yes or a no. doesn't mean that you're doing it perfectly. None of us will on this side. But it means that your trajectory and your life is for God's glory. And when you fail, you seek forgiveness and you turn. And when you're doing well in Christ, you praise Him because that's His Spirit in you. If you're still in rebellion against the living God, and your life is primarily lived day in and day out for you. You get up for you. You go to work for you. You play for you. You go to bed for you. You will die for you. And I call you this morning to repent of your sins.
I call you this morning to repent for denying the very purpose for which you were created. Repent for not living to bring God glory. Repent for bringing the glory and honor to yourself. And ask God, who is most gracious and so good, to forgive you. Seek forgiveness from Him. Seek forgiveness for taking His creation and His image and perverting it. And then turn from that and turn to Christ and be healed. Ask for God to give you the righteousness of Christ instead of the just desert for your sins. The one who desires your greatest joy and your greatest happiness is your creator. It is your maker. It's not you. The things that you desire that you think will make you happy will actually lead to your death. God knows what is best for you. Don't be fooled by the lie that fooled Adam and Eve. Do not look upon the world and continue to eat from the things of this world thinking that'll satisfy, that'll cause joy, that'll bring that deep, deep place that I need to be satisfied once and for all. Stop that. That's a lie. Turn to Christ. Go to the cross and see the broken body and spilled blood of the man who died for you, of your Savior, and love him most. He can satisfy. He is the living water. He is the bread of life. He can satisfy. My beloved, if you are born again, and this sermon causes you to rejoice in the depth of your soul because you say, I do live for God Not perfectly, but He is my glory. He is my end. He is my aim. He is my life. If that's you, then you praise God this morning. That's not your doing. That is the work of the Holy Spirit who came upon you and said, enough's enough. You were created for my glory. And then He changed your heart. And so you are. I pray that you will continue to draw closer to Christ. I pray that your testimony as an image bearer will be real. It won't be here in the church. It'll be everywhere. So your friends and your family and your coworkers and your neighbors will know that you are distinctly different because you are living as an image bearer of your maker. Ask yourself, do they see Christ in you? Christian, you claim the name disciple? Are you walking the walk? Do they see it in you? Let's pray that they do. Let's pray that we are living individually and collectively as a body in the image of God. Let's pray that this world, this community, Cambrian Park, let's pray that they see the saints at Cambrian Park Baptist Church as image bearers. They see the light and they see the love and they see the grace that God has given us through the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, they glorify the Father too. How wonderful if we were to live as we were created to live. How wonderful if we as a church would be a brilliant light in this most dark world. How wonderful if the world sees your good deeds and glorifies God. Let's pray to that end. Father, we seek forgiveness from you knowing that many of us have continued to live for our own glory. 
We have rejected being image bearers. And we have desired above all else to live for ourselves. We know, Father, you created us for you. We know that our purpose is to live a life that is worthy and pleasing and honoring to you. And yet, even with that knowledge, Lord, we turned away from you to live for ourselves. We made ourselves our own gods. Father, forgive us for that. Forgive us for, even in our faith, so much of our lives being for us and not for you. We ask, Lord, that you'd be gracious with us this morning. We pray, Father, by your Spirit, that you would, through the indwelling of Christ, equip us with that greater affection, that greater desire to truly be your people, a holy people, a royal priesthood set apart for your glory. Lord, I ask for a radical reorientation of our lives right now that our hearts would no longer be subject to the, to the whims and the, the distractions and the pleasures of this world, that we would fight hard to not be conformed by it, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ. I ask, Lord, for your blessing on this impossible task for us. We cannot live rightly unless you enable us, unless you equip us. Father, for those who have heard this message and they say honestly that their life is not fully committed to you, that your glory is not their purpose, I pray you would save them. Show them their end, Lord. Show them the deception that fooled Adam and Eve centuries ago. Show them, Lord, that that is death and show them life. Show them Christ. Lord, and encourage those who are, who are following you and striving for holiness. Encourage them. Encourage them this day to press on toward the goal, to win the prize for which Christ has called us heavenward. Please, God, we ask that you be gracious with us so that we would be a people that glorify you most. Show us the cross again. Let us see our Savior again. Let us rejoice in his broken body and his spilled blood on our behalf. Many are sleepy today, Father. You call us to awake from our sleep, to awake from the dead. I pray we would this morning. Help us to that end, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.